Hello, I'm John Kelly, and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, not the live version of a version of Waltz for Debbie. There are so many. And that one uh, chosen tonight by tonight's guest, because on uh, Sundays we get someone to pick the music. And tonight the music is being picked by Mark Doherty, who is a, a writer and an actor and all manner of things. In fact, you've been in a, what, what they call a heap of things, I guess is how you'd put it, Mark. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what I am. I don't know when people ask. I don't know how to describe what I do at all. I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a chancer who gets away with um, uh, fingers in a number of pies. Well, for the uh, purpose of, of tonight's interview, and make, making it sound rather more streamlined than you've just presented yourself, um, Tuesday night, your, your play, which, which, you, which you wrote, Trad, Opens in Cork, and that's been on the that's been on the go for the past while now. Aaron Monaghan, who was our guest a while back in the show, oh, yeah, directed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but that's an old play, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it was it was produced in two thousand and four originally. Yeah, um, I wrote it uh, o- over the course of a, a couple of years, and um, it became what it became. And then, um, yeah, I managed to get it to a, a, produ- a producer, a sympathetic producer, Rose Parkinson, at the Galway Arts Festival, and she really dug it, so she wanted to put it on. Um, so that was the start of it, yeah. Um, well, Mark, we'll, we'll no doubt come back to many of the things you've just mentioned as we progress through the evening picking your tunes. But just the, the, that first tune you picked, um, yeah. Waltz for Debbie. Yeah. It's not a version of it that I know, although there are numerous versions of it. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what, what you heard first. I'm, I'm guessing, given the fact, and we should say this at the start, your dad, Jim Doherty, very well known, mm. uh, Irish jazz musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing the Bill Evans version was 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 floating in the air around yeah, your house, was it? Yeah, I'm not sure I ever heard me dad playing that tune. Um, I know Louis Stewart used to used to play it a lot, um, but I've always loved it. Um, it's got a nice lyric as well. In in this version, it's called uh, Monica's Vaults, which I presume is Ma- Monica Zetterlund sang it also with Bill Evans. They might have even had some kind of romantic uh, liaison, I think, but. Uh, but uh, I'm a big fan of uh, well, I love I love singing, I love the uh, human voice, John, the human voice, um, and I love harmony. And uh, you know, this is only five. There's five singers there, singing that, and it sounds like a very full band and full orchestration. Um, Actually, you've, so got, I, you've got quite a few singers on your list. I do. I yeah, so. I think I think I I chose about half and half. Um, I love I love I love uh, the human voice. Yeah. Um, but that one, yeah, I, I just, I just think it's a lovely noise they make. There's only five of them, and yet they create this swinging thing that starts in a waltz time and then goes into four four. And um, there's very little wrong with that. I think. Well, look, let's let's have your 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 second choice, and then we'll talk about your dad and uh, the musical background in 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 your house. Yeah. And this this is what you've chosen is your dad with Louis Stewart. Now tell yeah. me, tell me. You know, I've seen Louis play. God rest him. And I saw your dad play. You know, you know, and 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 a lot of their contemporaries over the years. 
What 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 did that whole scene mean to you as a, as a, as a kid growing up? You know, you're, you're, because there weren't. I mean, there may have been, but there weren't many jazz musicians with a name in Ireland. I don't think who were who were no. whose names were known. No. Um, yeah, I think I, I don't know when I became aware of it that my family was a tiny bit different to the other families. Like I went to a nice uh, uh, a nice school, St Michael's College, and. Um, better known for rugby now more than anything but um, it, it, it's where a lot of professional people would have sent their children you know a lot of doctors and dentists and lawyers probably came out of there but I remember about the age of 12 12 or 13 I became aware that my upbringing was a tiny bit different or my family um, situation um, I suppose it was the house was full of musicians all the time but I didn't assume that other houses weren't full of musicians as well you know um, I remember a teacher asking us one time um, about parent-teacher meetings. So my father could never attend these things. And um, I remember a teacher saying something about um, all of us being so lucky because our fathers, are, our mothers and fathers are there every night and our fathers go to work in the morning. I remember sticking my hand up going, uh, no, uh, my dad is usually uh, gigging at night and then he doesn't get up uh, and I see him when I come home from school at four o'clock <laughs> and he's in his pyjamas sometimes writing, or you know. Um so it was a it was a slightly different upbringing maybe but um I did I didn't know anything else it was it was great. Well let's listen to your dad uh, Jim Doherty with Louis Stewart and uh, this can't be love. This Can't Be Love, that version from Jim Doherty and Louis Stewart together and Mark Doherty, Jim's son, is my guest tonight picking all the music. Actually, just clear this one up for me, Mark. You're Mark Doherty, your dad's Jim Doherty, but your brother yeah. is Mark O'Doherty. Yeah, David O'Doherty. Or sorry, yeah, David yeah, O'Doherty. Yeah, yeah, your brother's not Mark. That, yeah. that would be even, that would be funny. <laughs> just show a curious he, lack he, of imagination he, on my parents. He's David O'Doherty. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is that has he picked a stage name or have you and your dad picked a stage oh, name? I don't know if I should tell the truth about this because there's well, various versions of it out there right. and I like hearing uh, I like hearing what what people uh, think is the truth about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't, it, I, but, <laughs> no, I'll tell you. But okay. a, no, my dad um my dad I believe was advised to drop the O. We we are officially O'Darty. Oh right, okay. So he was playing under the name Jim Jim O'Darty or James O'Darty. I think somebody advised him to that there was a better flow Jim right. Doherty. Okay. Sounded better. Yeah. So then because he had quite a high profile when we were growing up, uh, it was assumed that we were Doherty. Of course, yeah. Um, so I just went along with that. So yeah. I, I, in, in the first the first show I ever did, I was put in the programme as Mark Doherty. I wasn't asked what my name was. <laughs> so I, I went with that. So David is actually the only one telling the truth. Okay. The name is O'Doherty. Fair yeah. enough. But I've read versions on the internet that David mysteriously uh, planted an O in his name to differentiate himself from his jazz playing father <laughs> and his brother and all this. So there's oh, the well. truth for once. Well, let's 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 go back to that house then. Um, where where were you living? Uh, we grew up in Sandy Mount. Sandy Mount. Yeah, right. church born into in in Churchtown and then uh, moved to Sandy Mount. And uh, I normally ask people this question, but in your case, it's obviously true. A piano in the house, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, they got good use out of it. Yeah. <laughs> they did. And was, yeah. You, was your dad playing piano like all the time? Um, no, no, he wasn't playing all the time. No, I mean. Um, I think back in those days when, it, you know, the late, early 70s, um, 
there were a lot of gigs, so he was he was gigging, he was away a lot, and he was playing playing six nights a week a lot of the time. Not just jazz now either. Mm. He's a he's such a he's, he's a he would call himself a musician rather than necessarily a sure. a jazz musician, I think. But it's just he is such a. Uh, well, a talent, but a, a head for music, and he just hears, um, he hears something and plays it, and um, so Im- improvisation is one of his, one of his great skills and talents. But I think, um, but he was, he, you know, he's worked a, done a lot of musical theatre, mm. um, written for you know jingles for for ads and theme music for television shows and shows that a lot of us grew up with, you know, Wanderly Wagon and all these things. Mm. My Sundays when I was growing up were spent in. Studio One in RTE, watching the recording of Wanderly Wagon. Great. Yeah, Eugene Lambert and uh, standing in front of a bit of green screen uh, with Judge. And, uh, and yeah. while all that is brilliant, I would imagine, though, I can't speak for your dad, but I can imagine playing with Louis Stewart in that circumstance was probably the best of all, was it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. They, were, they went back a long way. They did, yeah, yeah. I think my dad claims he gave Louis his first first gig and uh, and possibly uh, this this album uh, Tunes we, we just heard this this can't be love um, I think that might have been Louis's last recording so they had this uh, professional and uh, personal association for like f- 50 years more mm. than that there's a story about the album Tunes that uh, they, 50 years ago they said we must uh, we must do an album of duets and uh, they finally <laughs> got around to it but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Louis yeah I, I often wonder um did everybody know how good Louis was at the time? I think I heard my dad saying, well, he just assumed all guitarists were as good as this. If this was a kid from Waterford and he could do this, then, you know, there were... There were but but I think it was only, uh, you know, only a little later you realised this is such a special talent and such a unique um, and brilliant uh, um, gift and facility that this fellow And such had. an interesting character, Louis, the way he would mm. kind of... Not underplay it, but he, he wouldn't make a, a big deal out of it, you know. I mean, no, you know, no. I mean, I, I I just know from doing radio and so on, you would constantly meet these Louis fans, you know, who said, "Why don't you do more for Louis? And why don't you play more Louis?" Yeah, yeah. But but Louis wasn't in any way pushy about things, you know. He he wasn't he wasn't sitting there moaning that he wasn't a big star. His fans were. Yeah, his fans, yeah. His yeah. fans are really annoyed that Louis wasn't getting the attention he deserved. Yeah, yeah. But there's no doubt. I mean, if he had lived in New York or somewhere, mm. he'd be as well known as Jim Hall or any oh, of the for rest sure, of them. Yeah, and he is. Yeah. You know, among musicians, among musicians and um, yeah. and diehard fans, he yeah. is. Yeah. He is that well known. But uh, his 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 neighbours wouldn't have known him. Yeah. Probably, you know? yeah. <laughs> I, I know when I first went to New York and met jazz musicians, and they said, "Where are you from?" And I'd say Ireland. All of them would say, "Do you know yeah. Louis Stewart?" Yeah. You know, they would always yeah. Tommy Flanagan, people like that. Do you know really? Louis? Yeah. 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 Do you know yeah. Yeah, I've heard of a, yeah, a lot of musicians coming in here. The, the first thing they would do if they were coming in to play a concert, the first thing they would do is is tr- get Louis's number and, g- yeah. and go and hang out with him that afternoon or yeah. play with him. Or something. And this is a guitarist like, you know, um, you know, the uh, guys like Pat Martino and, uh, you know, John Schofield yeah. and people like this. Guys, you know, John Schofield playing with Miles Davis gets to Dublin and goes, get me Louis Stewart. I got oh, yeah, it. I got doesn't it. surprise me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... When you're in a house like that, now I mean, it's, it wasn't it wasn't exclusively a jazz household, but I mean, given that your father was working and all, he was a yeah. working musician, so yeah. he was having to play everything. Yeah. Was he listening to everything as well in the house? I mean, I know other people who worked in either show bands or big bands or orchestras and so on, and they had to keep on top of all kinds of music 
for professional reasons. Mm-hmm. So people like Elvis Costello, for instance, because his dad was in the Joe Lost Band, mm-hmm. he was hearing everything from Ella Fitzgerald to the Beatles to you know all these songs were being played by his dad professionally. Yeah. So he, you know, there was so much music in the house. Yeah. Your list suggests perhaps you were just listening to jazz your entire life. Well, I don't know. I, I had difficulty making this list because I was I was trying to think of what music I listened to and what music that was important to me at particular times, but I, I, like. I just don't listen to it anymore. It doesn't mean anything to me, you know. At one stage, I was... Uh, you don't listen to music anymore? Oh, no, I do. I do, but it's come, become quite... Not not exclusively this this music, but the music that I might have had time for when I was 13, I really don't care about at all anymore. Yeah. Like, the last single I bought, I think, was by The Smiths. Yeah. What difference does it make? That was a, a very important piece of music, but I really... It, it, Two years later, I didn't care. I was listening to Queen, and I liked a melody. And mm-hmm. um, but that music, uh, I was going to put bits, you know, a, a track or two of that down for this show. But I didn't want to in the end because there's so much great, um, there's so much great music that I listen to now. Mm. Um, so I've, I've uh, no, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I focused it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned singers earlier on. Your next mm. choice is a singer. Again, you know, she's not as well known as some of the others. I mean, she's not as well known as Ella or Sarah Vaughan or something. This is like Irene Grant. Yeah. yeah, no, she's not well known at all. In fact, I think she died very young. I think she died of cancer at the age of forty something, early forties. Um, but there's a beautiful, there's a purity about her voice. She sings in tune, <laughs> and she sings. Uh, she has um, she has a jazz feel. Uh, I love the way she phrases a lyric. She kind of makes it her own, uh, and she plays. Um, she plays with this beautiful pianist, uh, Alan Broadbent, this New Zealand mm-hmm. fellow. Do you know him? He played with Charlie Hayden a lot, that guy. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. I think he's still around. But this is um, this is a song that they recorded. And it's uh, a little one, a little piece I came across. It's a Dave Frischberg song. And Dave Frischberg uh, kind of, uh, I don't know if you know him, but he, he kind of continued the great tradition of the um, the great writers and lyricists um the Tin Pan Alley guys, you know, um, and he brought it a, a step further. Um, and as a matter of interest, would you have heard this when you were growing up or did you come to it in later life? I, f- I had a cassette of it, I remember. Yeah. I don't know where it came from. Um, and it was these quirky, uh, wry little songs. Um, and this one was on it. But this is a, a very, um, my, my love of lyrics, this is a deceptively simple um but but quite quite brilliant song like a, like a, a good poem where there's something else going on going on in the background you know okay. you are there Irene Crow in the evening when the kettle's on for tea an old familiar feeling settles over me and it's your face Well, Mark, that's a beaut. Mark Doherty in studio with me tonight picking all the music and that's Irene Kral. It's gorgeous, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a song called You Are There um, by, by Dave Frischberg, yeah. Uh, from an album called uh, The Gentle Rain. He's a great, uh, he's a great writer, Dave Frischberg, yeah. He, um, he was kind of adopted by a few... Um, a few song, uh, a few singers. Um, Blossom Deary recorded yeah. a lot of his stuff, and um, songs, songs like uh, I think he put the music to, he put the words to "Peel Me a Grape," 
um, my attorney Bernie, uh, the the <laughs> underdog. Um, what's the one? I wrote down a a, a a lyric from the underdog. Oh yeah, people people think it's funny when you're spending all your money on the clown when the chips are down. These are these are the, just beautiful little rhymes. Um, um, you would rather have the blues. Do you know that song? Dollar bills could float down from the sky. You could be the world's most lucky guy. Any guy with half a chance to choose would choose to be in your shoes. But still, you'd lose, you'd lose because you would rather have the blues. Yeah, I think we all know somebody like that, you know. <laughs> and then the other aspect of this too, which I, I guess probably interests you as an actor, is that these songs are sung and put across to you by the middle man or woman, the mm-hmm. singer. Mm-hmm. You know, so you mentioned Blossom Deary and you mm. know, there's Irene Kral there singing that song. Mm. They're not, they're not even singing their own words and they can no. do that, you know. And that's, no. of course, what an actor has to do. Yeah, nightly, they're, right? they're interpreters, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's more than... Um, it, it, it's more than just... Uh, it, 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 it's quite a deep gift, I think, to to see a song and read it and make it your own and carry it, carry it across and, you know, make people believe that that's your story. A lot of a lot of the singers that I love um, aren't even technically the most brilliant singers. They're people with who get the feeling across and and inhabit a lyric to the extent that you believe it's their it's them and it's their experience that they're singing about. Um, I mean, I love great uh, singers who sing in perfect pitch and with a huge range and acrobatics and you know um, Sarah Vaughan and these these guys. But I also love, um, or maybe even prefer, um, the likes of uh, Shirley Horn. Mm-hmm. People like that. She's not a brilliant singer, but she absolutely uh, inhabits a, a song and and makes it her own and communicates a message. And you do believe that uh, that she's written it herself and she's lived through these things. You know, how much of your taste when it comes to jazz do you think came from your dad? I mean, was yeah. there was there any indoctrination going on tonight? No, tonight, not at children, all. we're going to listen to. You, you know. <laughs> not at all. No, no, no. I remember a few moments where I I I came to it and started actively listening. I remember one night, whatever age I was, maybe I was thirteen or fourteen, um, and I remember there was a party on. I think there might have been it might have been the end of some theatre show that my dad was involved in, and he was throwing a party, and he asked me to uh, take out some music have some music ready to play when people come in. And I remember taking out a few records and I, f- I found the Louis Stewart record out on his own. Um, and I, I knew Louis from hanging around the house and everything, but I'd never listened to the music or considered it even. But I remember uh, actively listening to it that day and finding something beautiful in it. Um, and I remember also, I was listening to Steely Dan and a few, you know, there was a jazz thing there besides mm-hmm. what was going on in my own house. But Steely Dan were playing quite sophisticated rock music but with with jazz influences and they were bringing in the the great um jazzers to come for an afternoon to come in and play on a song and asia is full of you know wayne shorter and Mm. uh, all these guys so i remember finding names on album covers and then going to investigate them myself Mm. um i remember uh, one time as well i think i was it was a lonely life it was a lonely, <laughs> it was a lonely time because I didn't know anybody who was who had these musical interests. There was one guy in school, a friend of mine, David Handy, who I'm still mates with, uh, but he was into all that as well. However, he found it. His dad was a butcher. Mm. I found it because my dad was a musician, maybe. But uh, 
But I remember um, in Suffolk Street one day, McCullough Piggott's. Do you remember McCullough mm-hmm. Piggott's? I remember there was a vinyl sale on there and everything was half price or less. And I remember going in there and investigating a few names that I'd come across in Steely Dan records, I think. And I found uh, some Blue Note records and one of the first ones I bought was uh, The Sidewinder by oh, Lee Morgan. Yeah. I think just because I liked the cover, I don't think I would have been familiar with Joe Henderson or, or um, Barry Harris or the musicians on it. But I remember taking that home and loving it. Um, and then going back to McCullough Piggott's and investigating further and coming home with more Blue Note records. But it was kind of, it was nothing imposed at all by the dad. And he was secretly happy that this stuff was... Will we, will we play it? The Sidewinder? Yeah. Oh, which track do you want? Oh, sorry, I think it's called Boy What a Night. Any, right. any of them, it doesn't really matter. Okay, here's uh, Boy What a Night. Lee Morgan from the Sidewinder. <laughs> from Lee Morgan from the Sidewinder album and Mark Doherty with me tonight picking the track so you bought that one in McCullough Piggott's and brought it home and it blew your mind yeah it did yeah it was, it was uh, a lot of that the Blue Note music around that time was great kind of early yeah. mid late 60s even um, ca- pretty catchy tunes as well oh, like yeah. kind of a funk element um, and, and everything about it was seductive I mean the album covers were gorgeous yeah and, you know all that yeah the, and it, the guys it, were it were presented cool. a kind of a world you wouldn't have minded going off and living in yeah yeah Although plenty of them didn't survive it. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's show business. <laughs> I think heroin, uh, heroin played a big part. Uh, exactly, yeah. We, we, um, that, the film, um, yeah, they called him Morgan. It's worth it's, seeing. Yeah, on Lee Morgan's life, yeah. Now tell me about your own creative journey as such. Um, because we're, I say as such because during that we were talking about how, how raggedy people's journeys tend to be, you know. Mm. Um, when you were at school, say, did you have an idea in your head what you might like to do when no. you when you grew up? No. No. No no notion. No. I liked the word marketing. But I didn't know what it meant really. Yeah. So um <laughs> I didn't pursue that one and I never looked it up. So yeah. uh so no, I ended up um I went to college, but I think in retrospect that was only because I it was kind of expected that, you know, you go to, go to a nice school and I got a half decent leaving cert. So I went to college because that's what we all did. Mm. But I really didn't want to, I didn't want to be there particularly. I went to Trinity and I studied um, uh, history of art, which I did like, and Italian because I had to choose another subject with history of art. And um, But I was there for, I, I survived for two years in Trinity. I didn't want to be there at all. And then I remember I failed one of my um, Italian exams and I went to Italy um, for the summer. To, and I was going to retake the exam, but it never came home. Ended up staying there. <laughs> really? Yeah. Stayed there for a year and I taught English. And um, At least I think this is the order. I'm, uh, this is all 30 years ago. Do, 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 do you get that? Uh, oh, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm putting a nice order on it now because it, it sounds smooth, but I think this was the order, yeah. So I stayed in Italy and... Um, in retrospect, you know, and I'm not advising people to abandon university or anything, but in retrospect... Might have been the best thing you ever did, I guess. Going to Italy and yeah. staying there for a year. I wish yeah. I'd done that. Yeah, well, we don't know. I mean, may, you know, you end up you end up where you end up, but maybe you might have ended up there anyway, even had you taken a more mm. circuitous route, you know, I don't, mm. I don't know. 
Um, I love advising. I love offering advice to young, young, like 14, 15 year old kids who haven't a notion what they want to do. But I love telling them it doesn't matter. You'll find what you want to do. I think mm. I was 22 before I decided I'd give acting a go. And what prompted that? I was in the Stag's Head pub and a friend of mine, Mandy, um, Amanda Hogan, was directing a play in Trinity. She was doing drama in Trinity and there was a script on the table and I had had several pints and I had a look at the script and thought, I could give us an audition, I could do that. And she did and so she gave me a part in it and I, I played, it was this um, a play by uh, Edward Bond called Red, Black and Ignorant and... Um, so she gave me a part in that and we performed it in uh, the old Lombard Street studio that used to belong to Trinity. And that was it. I, I got such a high from that, such a kick from it that I thought I, this this is the first thing I've come across that I'd love to do. And, and any previous experience at no, all? No, none, no. Never in a school I, play you... or never any interest <laughs> or anything. No. But when you're that age as well, like I was playing a bit of guitar and I thought maybe I might play guitar. And mm. I went to Paris and I had a friend in Paris and I went and um, stayed with him and, and brought me a guitar and, you know, spent four months there busking and meet musicians and playing guitar. I think I realised that I wasn't good enough then to to do it or to play the music I wanted. But when you're 21 or 22, it's... There's no it, rush. Yeah, yeah. And so after your... You said you got a real high from the performance. Mm. You got a real kick out of it. You... I suppose you couldn't wait to do something else, but it's not that easy when you're an actor, is it? I mean, you, you, no. I mean, roles don't don't necessarily fall at your feet. No, they don't. No, no. I remember announcing it at home um, that I'd like to pursue this, and um, my folks were very uh, generous. And um, uh, I remember my dad um, sent me. He said, "I know who you have to talk to if you want to do this." I, I was thinking, like, maybe I could do a course, or there's something in Trinity, and there's something in. I don't think the Gaiety School was there, but. There was a few courses going and my dad said, I know who you need to talk to. And he sent me down um, to Ryan's in Sandymount to have a pint with Pat Laffer, oh, right. recently deceased. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Legendary fella. Um, and we, uh, so I met Pat and Pat, Pat said, ah, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. That's that. You know, uh, so that was, that was, I took that as encouragement. So then I found this course in Bull Alley. Um, so I did a, a two year acting course there and then came out and um and gave it a shot, yeah. And um, what was the first, the first kind of uh, post college, you know, for want of a better word, proper gig that you had then on stage? Oh God, um, we did a few of us did this production of Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Um, the few guys um, that are still performing now were were part of it. Jimmy Fay was yeah. was in it. Who's now in the Lyric in Belfast? Um, that was one where we all uh, we all committed to it, yeah, and then went on the road and played in these time. We played in the uh, the international in Dublin. Then we played in a place called the Fisherman's Hall in Dunmore East, and but it just uh, it was very exciting um, for a door split. You know, everybody coming home with with sixteen quid. Um, that was it, but uh, but very exciting. But you don't you don't, when you have no you have no plan or responsibilities or anything. Um, you just have to make your twenty quid a week rent. You know, so. Um, yeah, it was a very exciting period, yeah. Your next musical choice, and this isn't jazz, we have uh, Martin Hayes on the list. Martin Hayes, yeah, yeah. Again, I found myself with a cassette of Martin Hayes. I think my dad might have given it to me, even Brian Dunning or somebody would have put him wide to Martin Hayes um, because I don't have any great appreciation of this music or, or knowledge of the trad scene. But when I heard Martin Hayes, the hair stood up in the back of my neck. I heard... Um, 
Irish um, traditional tunes and stuff, but with with such a feel and such a lilt, and he's bending notes and he's playing the blues, mm-hmm. um, and he's got such a great um, such great technical ability that it's kind of a bit like Louis George. It's just it's just a case of your ideas. What are your ideas now for this bit? You know. But he has this association with Dennis Cahill and they play yeah. they play together and they they read each other's minds, you know, they're so attuned to each other. And it's strange that that, that associ- not strange at all actually, but that association of the two of them playing together, it appeals to musicians from other disciplines, other genres. Yeah. You know, jazz musicians like what they do. You know, people like sure, Bill yeah. Frizzell loves yeah. loves what they That's do. That's right, yeah, know? yeah. Well again, I think they're 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 brilliant um musicians without um Labeling them with a, you know, as Irish or trad or whatever, they're they're guys with huge ears who can, who no, can that's, pick that's up and communicate. With anybody them. walks into my studio and talks about people with huge ears, there's no need for that. That was that was a bit strong. This one, this is actually. <laughs> I won't recover from that now. This is this is actually with a. I remember Louis, Louis used to always refer to a teachers, um, music teachers, and me dad as well. Um, me dad says, "Oh yeah, sure, his ears are painted on." <laughs> I think um, this one is actually uh, is it Steve Cooney I think on guitar here but like like Dennis Cahill he um, I've, I've, I've tried playing guitar as well and uh, I, I was clearly no good but these guys um, they just play they use the whole guitar the whole arm beautiful little two and three note chords um, and colour the music in, in, in quite a quite a profound way behind the Behind the soloist. So this comes from an album called Under the Moon, Martin Hayes. Martin Hayes there and a bit of a, a medley involving O'Connell's March, Galway Bay Hornpipe, the Banshees, Whale, Over the Mangled Pit, tunes from uh, Martin Hayes there. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. Mark Doherty is with me tonight picking the tracks and uh, after this break we're going to talk a little bit more about his current uh, play which, which he has written, which has been on tour for the past while and opens in Cork on Tuesday night. It's called Trad. We'll talk about that after this break. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special where we get someone in to pick all the music. And tonight my guest is Mark Doherty, actor, uh, writer. He's mentioned guitar a few times as well. So there are various uh, various aspects to this man. But currently, currently what he is focusing upon is his own play, Trad. We talked about it at the start of the programme. It's a, it's, a, it's a play which has been around for a while, but it's back again. And tell me a bit more about it now at this stage Mark, um, because you've got Aaron Monaghan directing it. Yeah. Who's in it? Uh, Seamus O'Rourke uh-huh. and Emmett Kerwin uh-huh. play uh, Da and uh, and the Son. Uh, and then Claire Barrett, uh, a brilliant uh, comic uh, actress, plays plays two roles. She's Sal as funny an actress as I've ever seen. Ah, she's great, yeah. She is so... I've seen her yeah. do lots of things over the years. She's very funny. Ah, she is, you know, yeah, yeah. And there's music in this. There is, yeah. There's a guitar and fiddle, yeah. Um, and how do you handle that? How was that done? 
There's a lovely guitarist, uh, Tony Byrne, who's, who played in the original production, actually, as well, um, and a fiddler, Andy Morrow. And they make, uh, they make beautiful noise um, with, uh, with the dots provided by, by my dad again. Uh, but when I was writing it originally, I was listening to Martin Hayes and Dennis Gatt. I remember I had them on in the background a lot of the time. Um, and when I was finished, uh, I thought it would be lovely to have music, to have live music mm. uh, as part of the show. And I gave the play to me dad. And I think I remember just saying to him, Martin Hayes and Dennis Gatt sort of style. And he came up with the music for the show, which is just... Um, it's just uh, so appropriate and uh, and really beautiful as well. And when we were rehearsing originally, it it, it came together and it, it you know we had it at a kind of a, a level. And then I remember me dad coming in with the music and the musicians coming in, and it just lifted the whole thing. This was uh, the original production that Michael Murphy directed with Frankie McCafferty and Peter Gowan and David Pierce. That's um, a good cast as well, oh, isn't it? Lads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we were we were so lucky. Um, yeah, I was thinking about it recently, actually. The, the great collaboration. Um, you rarely... Uh, well, I work a lot on my own, you know. And, but you, it, when, a, when a collaboration comes together um, and people are thinking along the same lines, um, it's amazing how something can grow and improve. It was on in Galway. It wasn't supposed to be on in a theatre. It was going to be on in a pub or something. And I thought... I remember thinking that's grand um, because I'll I'll get away with this now. Not many people will see it, and it'll be fine. It'll be over, and I can say that I that I've done a play, <laughs> that I've written a play. I'm serious. Yeah, I know. Um, and then we got word that whatever was supposed to be in Druid Lane was cancelled, and we were moving into Druid Lane. And I remember I just my heart started beating, and I just went, "But pe- that means people are going to come and see it." And I was terrified, and I I thought that means reviewers are going to come, and somebody's going to write a review of it, and there's me found out for certain. Well, in those circumstances, and I know that's a common experience for for actors and writers and all sorts of people—the fear of being found out and not sure if they can do it. One thing, you know. Do you know? Do you know why you wrote it then? Because as you, if if your initial idea was I'm going to write this, but I'm slightly worried that somebody might see it. Yeah. You are creating something which needs a public for it to to make any sense, really. Yeah. Um, so, do you know why you were writing a play? Because you could have sat at home writing songs for yourself or writing yeah. poems or painting yeah. pictures. Well, I did that as well. But yeah. They were so bad. They were worse than trads. Um, so why did you put yourself through that? Then? I don't know. I don't know is the truth. Yeah. Um, there's never been a plan. Mm. Um, I found I found myself somewhere and I liked I liked it. So I stayed with it. Um, but I never thought of myself as a playwright. I just, you know, I was doing a bit of acting and then I got into a bit of stand-up and then I happened to get a commission for a short radio piece and I, I was going left and right and straight on and backwards. Do you call yourself a playwright now? No, I don't. You don't? No, no, no. But how could I, how could I, uh, how could I uh, stand there with Tom Murphy and say, oh, you're a playwright, I'm, yeah, I'm a playwright too. Or Conor McPherson or Marco Rowe or these guys, you Yeah, know. but that's, that's being hard on yourself because that's like saying I can't play guitar because Jimi Hendrix exists, you know, or I can't play saxophone because Joan Coltrane exists, you know. You're still you're still a musician, just but you know you're just not as good as those guys. But that's uh, but that's all right. Well, maybe maybe. But that's all right. Very few people are as good as those guys. In fact, nobody's as good as those guys. Mm, mm. Maybe they have. Um, maybe they, at a particular time they had the confidence to do it, or they thought of themselves as artists uh, and had a, more of a singular vision that I never had. 
Do you call I, yourself an artist? No, I don't. Do you I think of yourself as one, even in private moments? Oh, the, the very odd time, uh, maybe there's a percentage of what I do that is that comes from somewhere that's, that's, uh, that I don't understand, you yeah. know. Um, but a lot of the time, I think it's just, I find myself somewhere and think, right, how, how do I get out of this? <laughs> and pay the rent this month. Yeah. Um, but no, the odd time, the odd time I sit down and take take a lot of time. It's hard to find time when you're a little bit older and with a family and uh, rent and a kid going to school and uh, you know all that. It's, it's hard to find the time. But sometimes I do find the time to sit down and think of something original and pursue it and follow it through. Then if you hear terms like artistry or vocation even, I, I don't even, I don't know if I believe in that. I think it's just, um, I found myself doing something and I liked it and then I was I was at it and beca- it, I, I became uh, it, known for it or it was what I did and now it's th- 30 years later and I feel it's too late to get out anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm still here. You might, as well, you might as well stick with it at this point. <laughs> What else would but, you be um, doing? Yeah. Um, your next choice is Eddie Daniels. Now, tell me about Eddie Daniels. You picked a few people in the jazz bracket who weren't particularly well known. Yeah. Eddie Daniels, um, well, I was given a clarinet um, at the age of 21 or something. A friend of mine was going away and selling all his all his possessions. Um, and he asked me, did I want a clarinet uh, for 60 quid? So I said, yes, I do. So I I, I took the clarinet and I, I started trying to trying to learn that or trying to play it. And then I was with a musician one time uh, and I was asking him who should I listen to regarding clarinet and the usual names came out, Benny Goodman and people like this. And then he said, uh, have you heard Eddie Daniels? you got to hear Eddie Daniels. So I found an Eddie Daniels CD and I was just blown away by what this man could do um, on the clarinet. He has all the, again, the great, uh, the facility to, to play whatever he wants. He's got cla- he's classic, a classical musician as well and well known in classical circles. So he's got the chops um, and he's a beautiful jazz feel as well. And I heard the sound he makes uh, on a clarinet and um, I, was, uh, I was I was so excited by it. It was a new fella um, and a contemporary, you know, he's still around, still playing beautifully. Um, speaking of duets, he, he's made a couple of beautiful duet albums with Roger Calloway, the pianist. Mm. Again, the two of them um, just uh, second guessing each other and throwing bits to each other backwards and forwards and the, the level of communication and, and, and artistry is very high, you know. But Eddie Daniels, yeah, his sound, he just, uh, he, he hovers above the music. It's an ethereal thing. It's, um, it's, a, it's a lovely noise. Eddie Daniels and she wrote... Eddie Daniels there, and uh, she wrote from an album called To Bird With Love. Uh, your next musical choice is what, Mark? Where are we at here? Oh, Shirley Horn. Yeah, I love Shirley Horn. Um, she's a piano player, a beautiful swinging piano player, and, um, and, and a singer, yeah. And she really, uh, she's one that really inhabits the songs that she sings um, and chooses them very carefully. I don't think she'd bother singing anything otherwise if she didn't feel that she could make it her own, you know. But when I discovered her, I was very, uh, I was very excited. It was a, it was a, 
I knew there was a lot of listening ahead. It was a portal into a new <laughs> thing. It's great when that happens. <laughs> Shirley Horn, it's not easy being green. The choice of uh, Mark Doherty is with me tonight in studio. Mark, you're talking about stand-up there. Obviously, your brother's still out in the road doing doing his very unique. Yeah, he's uh, doing all right. For, he's doing all right. Oh, Doherty. Oh, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going through that again. Yeah. But in your case, how did you find stand-up? Because it seems, I, I guess, you know, anybody who's ever been in a theatre would look at a stand-up and if they have any sense at all, they might think that must be the toughest gig in the world yeah yeah. it's, it's funny even, even a lot of actors say uh, stand up is the most frightening thing and they're, they're doing something that may not be a million miles away you know mm. but a lot of it terrifies uh, actors <laughs> a lot of actors that I've spoken to I mean it's, it doesn't take much to imagine what it must be like to make the first joke and there's dead silence that must be awful yeah yeah that's happened yeah it is awful yeah it's the most um, immediate response that you, that you get to something that you produce and put out there you're standing in front of people and you, you're saying to them, I think this is funny, check this. And they, when they stare back at you and go, no, you've made a mistake. That's not funny. It's, uh, it's, very, it's very lonely, yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, if, you, you know you'd, 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 uh, you'd have a certain order, you'd have a set list. And then you might bring forward a couple of your, uh, your killer gags that uh, never fail you um, to try and get them on side. And the next one fails. And then the next one, and you realise I I have very little left, and I have another twenty eight minutes to kill. It uh, can be lonely, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but um, it doesn't happen that often, you know. If you if you're a stand up, um, then you get you get good and you get better, and you learn to deal with that, and you have more material that you can mess around with, and uh, you, you you get through those moments. But this is getting good and getting better on the stage with people looking at you. Is there any way you can prepare for this? I mean, did you just, again, you mentioned earlier, a lot of things just came your way and you did mm. them. What, your first stand-up gig was as a result of, of what? Yeah, I was acting, I was just uh, finished in school and um, I'd done a couple of shows. Again, I'm, I might be making up the order of this, but I think I'm right. Um, I'd done a couple of theatre things and I saw, um, I knew a couple of fellows that were involved. Uh, I think I had met Barry Murphy, who was doing the Comedy Cellar, and a couple of those guys... Uh, and and then people who were connected, another fellow called Brendan Dempsey, uh, another comedian, he knew that I was acting and I met him one time and he said, would you come down and do something, do five minutes of stand-up? And I thought it would be a good challenge. I thought it would be interesting. And um, So I, I put my name down for a little set, yeah. I wanted to do a double act, I remember, in the first, um, the first gig and I was trying to convince a, an actor to do it with me. And he pulled out at the last minute. And we had this kind of double act thingy. Um, so I went ahead and did the gig anyway on my own. And I played it like um, like I was the straight man of a double act. So a lot of it was about jokes. And then I didn't have a punchline. But I would get on to the <laughs> next piece. And um, it worked in some mad way. It kind of worked. And I remember well, it was upstairs in McDade's pub. Yeah. Tiny little room in McDade's pub to about 30, 30 people. And when it go, you mentioned what it's like when it's when it's not going well. When it's going well, 
Uh, what's that feeling like? Well, that that first gig went well, and, and I do still remember it. I think it's probably the highest I've ever been in my mm. life. Um, you know, uh, people liked it and laughed, and the high the high that you get off it is really um, quite astonishing. And I went home, and I just stared at the clock, it, lying in the bed, um, staring at the ceiling, replaying, going over lines and bits and bits that worked and bits that didn't work mm. with me foot jigging. And then it was like half six in the morning or seven in the morning. And I was still there um, too high to go to sleep. So there's moments like that, that uh, uh, maybe that encouraged me to give it another go as well. <laughs> Let's talk about the movies. Mm. Um Normally actors will tell you that their first love is the stage and that's where it's all about and movies are kind of just, you know, extra. But you were you were involved in a couple of movies that were kind of important in an Irish context, certainly, you know. Yeah. And, you know, what was your experience then of the, of, of the movies? Would you, was it a worthwhile experience for you being in movies? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Again, you're just playing a little, you're just playing a little part, you know, you don't really have any, as an actor, you don't have much control or in the the jobs that I get, you don't, you don't have a lot of control. So you again, hope that, um, you hope that everybody, that somebody has a, the bigger picture in mind, the director, and you hope that the, you're, you're going to be performing with people that you enjoy performing with. And you're, you hope that you can be part of that collaboration and make it into a bigger thing. And the fact that you're a writer, does that make it easier or harder? Yeah, I I often wonder. Maybe it, it, it might. Uh, maybe people are less likely to cast you if you're a writer because they yeah. think you'll be judging the lines. I, I yeah. don't know. Or changing That's them. My all, excuse yeah. for getting no work, <laughs> no work. Um, <laughs> but then the I I had an experience where I I wrote um a film with me in it. Yeah, and you wrote that as with Dylan Moran. With Dylan Moran, yeah. yeah. And that was an interesting one. That was a difficult, uh, it was difficult when you've written the words and you hear them very clearly in one way and you know how the jokes can work. It can be difficult then to pass it on and give it to a director and just hope that he sees it in the same way and has the same comedy bones and will cut it where you think it needs to be cut and um, will we'll, we'll, we'll serve it like that. Yeah, yeah. And would there be a lot of... I mean, you can't tell tales out of school, I guess, but, you know, you're filming a scene and are you stepping out of character to say, oh, hold on a minute, no, wait. That's uh, not the way that's supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, well, in, I wrote it with Dylan Moran in mind, so I was very aware that he would bring something um, very particular and probably better than a lot of the lines. He would come up with lines spontaneously that would be better than lines that I had spent weeks writing, you know, so you have to be open to that as well, so... <laughs> Your next choice is uh, with Stan Getz. Uh, was Stan Getz uh, a familiar sound in your household? Yeah, I know. I know that my dad would. Uh, he'd be among my dad's favourite tenor sax players. I think. Yeah, yeah. But for, yeah, I think I think he might be my favourite of them all. Um, just his sound um, and his ideas. He just seems to have an endless flow of ideas. You get the feeling that he could. He could blow 40 choruses on any song and not run out of ideas or repeat himself. Um, but his sound is just his sound, yeah. He's warm and um, and cold when he needs to be and um, takes a song and plays the lyric on the tenor saxophone, I think. Stan Getz. 
and that's Abby Link in there, If I Only Had a Brain. And before that, uh, Stan Getz and uh, a track called uh, Her from an album called Focus. Now t- tell me, first of all, Mark, and Mark Doherty's with me tonight picking all the music, that Stan Getz album, Focus, with the string arrangements and so on, but it's, it's, it's not as straightforward as that because you were explaining that the, the arrangements were done. I understand the arrangements were done and recorded, yeah, um, by Eddie Sutter. And then he wanted Stan Getz to come in. That was the uh, that, that was the idea that Stan Getz would come in and improvise over it and create kind of spontaneous uh, melodies over the top of it. That was the plan. It's beautiful, and, uh, isn't it? I think it's very beautiful. Yeah. Um, there was a little story. I love a little story behind the, the music as well. But I, I I read a biography of Stan Getz and they said that um, his mother died two weeks before the recording session. I think. And it sounded, the biographer, however he put it, but Stan was on the lash and hadn't played at all, hadn't picked up his instrument and came into the studio in a bit of a state um, and had a, might have had a scotch and a few headache tablets and uh, and then listened to the, the strings a few times and then just uh, came in and created these melodies over the top. Um, maybe there was some discussion around it or maybe there was some, um, some dots written on a matchbox, you know, but... Um, but this is a spontaneous composition uh, at, a, at, a, at its best. You know, mm. it's, I, and, I, and Abby Lincoln, then that Abby Lincoln song, you don't, you don't hear Abby Lincoln that often, you know, because she's, she's, she's a kind of an ornery kind of a singer sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah, she's, she's quite particular. Um, I do like her. Again, it's, she's got a jazz feel, you know. Mm. This, this, uh, you could give that song to somebody else uh, 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 and they will, they will sing it, but she invests uh, something very unique and particular in individual into the lyric and of course I love the lyric as well Well you, you know Mark that the jazz music uh, because of your dad and the people that your dad would have played with over the years and so on the music you've listened to it's a kind of a way of life as well and it's sort of a philosophy you know of, of art and a philosophy of creation and all the rest of it do you, do you think you've taken any of that side of your upbringing the jazz background into everything else that you do? Does it have any bearing on being a stand-up or being an actor or being a performer? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Maybe it was easier for me to get started or um, it wasn't such a shock uh, or it hasn't been such a shock each time I change direction to my parents. You know, Mm. they they just go, oh, well, that's that's what he wants to do. (laughs) Do what you're, do, do what you're, you know, what what you're happy doing. But but you're being exposed to a very very high level of of uh, facility for a start musicianship, but also creativity and imagination mm. and application. That's a you know at a very very high level. Mm. Um, I mean, if you if you admire what Stan Getz has just done there, you'd be if you apply the same bar to your own performance, you know, you'd be aiming quite high. Yeah, please, you're very disappointed a lot of the time. <laughs> Very disappointed with yourself, yeah. Um, it's a funny thing that I, I don't know. Like I, I, I said earlier, I think I don't know how much of it is me and how much of it is in my DNA about uh, kind of expecting nothing. Art Lohanlon used to have a line um, that I'm going to paraphrase and make a make a dog's dinner out of, but something like um, always ex- expect a slap in the face. And if you only get a kick in the arse, then it's a bonus. Uh, you know, uh, I, th- I've, I think I think I've got a lot of that where um, 
I just can't, if, if anything is successful, I just can't believe it. Mm. I can't believe me luck. Do you know what I mean? And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be modest. It's just something I, I don't expect people to like things a lot of the time. And if they do, I think not only have I got away with that, but uh, somebody likes it. It's brilliant. And some of those jazz guys that we're talking about, particularly the, the you know, the giants. Yeah. They didn't seem to be lacking in confidence in any way at all. Quite the opposite. You know, a lot of them seem to be very, very sure of what they were at. And we don't care whether you like it or not. This is it. Yeah. This is yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah. You know that line of Miles Davis where he said, people don't come to hear me play, they come to watch me think. Ooh. I mean, that takes, that, that takes some nerve to say something like that. You better be good after that. <laughs> Next choice is, uh, oh, Eddie Luis, I've ever pronounced his name. He was, a, he was a French musician, wasn't he? Yeah. Eddie, Eddie Louis or Eddie Luis. Yeah. He was French, um, French Hammond or- player. Yeah, Hammond yeah. organ, yeah. I always loved the sound of the organ. One of one of the one of the um, first records in my dad's collection that I liked was um, George Benson playing with uh, Brother Jack McDuff, yeah. just really funky um, church music. Um, and then I've heard a few times Hammond organ and piano together, and it's a beautiful combination. To and my a strange ears. idea in a way. Yeah, it yeah. sounds all wrong, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. And both big uh, chordal instruments that you think will be bumping into each other all the time. But again, when you have the sensitivity and uh, intelligence that um that these artists have then that, that that doesn't happen so much and the piano player is michelle petrugiani yeah you're a marvel really uh yeah a guy who was in in an awful lot of pain for a, a lot of his life i think as well i'm not sure the name condition. of the condition that he had i don't know either no um but he was his growth was was severely stunted yeah. and um I've, you know in concerts you see he he's he's uh, carried out sometimes even and helped up onto a piano stool but then the music he starts making, it's, uh, it's, it's quite beautiful. Um, I, I saw a documentary on him too. I believe he was in pain a lot of the yeah. time. And he said the only time that he forgot was when he was at the piano, when he was playing. But he plays here with, uh, with Eddie Luis. Yeah. Um, this is called Rashid. <laughs> Doherty is with me in studio tonight picking all the music and that uh, Eddie Luis and Michelle Petrucciani uh, Conference de Presse uh, the album the track Rashid uh, Mark it is kind of odd to hear that the organ and the piano together and uh, when you mentioned it first I thought I'm not sure this is going to work but it works really well oh yeah I think uh, I think it does yeah but they're, they're both such they're both big chordal instruments though that I think uh, again it just takes great players to listen and stay out of the way and you know um, like um, Bill Evans and Jim Hall playing together um, or even like me dad and Louis and I remember my dad talking about staying out of the way when doing duets with Louis you know you've got two massive instruments that are chordal as, as well as everything else yeah. so to, 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 to the trick or it takes, it takes some uh, intelligence to stay out of the way and just um, accompany uh, correctly and sympathetically you know well, the best jazz musicians are sensitive 
yeah. musically anyway. I don't know, they're not all sensitive souls, but they're sensitive musically. Uh, we want to get another couple of tracks in before we go. So let's, let's just move ahead, Mark, to, to Mark Murphy. And again, you've picked people who aren't all that well known, although you'll find them on lots of compilations to this day. You'll find them on a lot of uh, kind of uh, cool, hip, funk, jazz kind of compilations too, mod jazz compilations. Even. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing him in Dublin, actually. He came and he performed. Did, oh, did I you saw see him, him that yeah, time? Yeah. yeah. I saw him in, uh, do you remember, it was Reinhardt. Reinhardt, that's when I saw was him. Jazz yeah. There, yeah. yeah. And it, it, was, it was kind of strange. Mm. Incredible voice. Mm. But I, but it's he, he does that kind of singing, that, that kind, particular kind of jazz singing that is certainly a minority sport, I think. Yeah. I don't know about the track you're about to play, but he does yeah. a lot of, what's it called? It's like the John Hendricks kind of. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not scat as it's not scat. That's why uh, I'm trying to playing wildly with yeah. the with with, with the, the the lyric and the melody. Vocalese, yeah. is that right? Vocalese, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Mark Murphy for me is the, is the best, and then he's I think he's had a he's influenced guys like Kurt Elling and people like that. Yeah. Um, but Mark Murphy, yeah, and he always stayed true to the music, as far as I know. When when other guys were recording a lot of rock and roll, and he he stayed with the. Uh, the Great American Songbook and the music that he loved and believed in. Um, so no doubt he paid for it and moved record labels and was was thrown thrown around the place a bit. But uh, yeah, another a proper artist again. And what do you want to play from from uh, Mark Murphy? Uh, this is a song called uh, "Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me," um, and it's it's he, he recorded it in about two thousand and seven, I think. Uh, so it's quite a it's a mature mature voice. Um, compared to how he sang in the 50s and 60s. But, um, yeah. Mark Murphy. Someone told someone and someone told you But they wouldn't hurt you Not much And that's Mark Murphy there, the choice of Mark Doherty and uh, Mark Murphy's version of Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me. And you never will. Uh, Mark, uh, just before we go, and we mentioned the dates for, for Trad again before we go, um, what are you at at the moment, mostly, having just told us you've, over your career, moved back and yeah, forth, yeah. zigzagged? Uh, the last few years, it's been uh, movies. Yeah, trying to write movies. Um once that's, again, that's a thankless task, isn't it? Right. Once again, movies. I've backed the wrong horse. Yeah, yeah. just as movies aren't being made anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, I've written. Um, I've probably written about uh, I don't know ten movies or. Uh, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been working on a very beautiful thing. Um, the last year, uh, there's a book called At Swim Two Boys. Do you mm-hmm. know that one? Not, not at Swim Two Boys. Yeah. At Swim Two Boys by Jamie O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And it's two young lads who fall in love. It's 1916. Um, the book takes the, takes place over the course of a year, 1915 to 1916. And these two boys um, make a pact. It's it's set all around um, South Dublin and Dunleary. And they make a pact to swim from the 40 foot to um, Muglin's Rocks. Um, a year hence, which is coincidentally Easter Sunday, 1916. So... You've got all this this beautiful merging of the boys' story and um, kind of searching for identity and uh, Ireland kind of finding itself and becoming independent around the same time. Mm-hmm. 
and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. It really is a proper work of art. Um, so I'm trying to write a screenplay. I've just finished a draft of a screenplay. That so when you, you, I mean, that's that's quite a lot of writing. But of course, anybody knows anything about trying to get a movie off the ground. You write this script, and, and, and that script might never see the light of day, or indeed, it might in ten years' time, fifteen yeah. years' time. Yeah. You know, can you? How are you at that side of it? I mean, the writing you can do, you do that at home, but after that, flogging the thing seems to be a real nightmare. Yeah. Me. Well, it's usually out of my hands at that stage. It's, yeah. um, it, it hasn't. Of course, I haven't been an, responsible for. You've flogging. got an agent and everything. I have an agent. Yeah, yeah. who do that? Yeah. Or in this case, somebody came to me and. Um, and asked me to do uh, an adaptation of it. So um, no, I, I mean I do I do what what I can do, and then after that hope that um, there's there's some kind of life for it. In this case, it would be it would probably be quite expensive because it's 1916, so immediately it's a period piece, and it's going to be a few million quid to make it, you know. But uh, it's such a beautiful story and so beautifully written by Jamie O'Neill. Um, that I'd have, I'd have some hope for it. Yeah. Well, well, good luck with all that. Yeah. And uh, Trad, which we were talking about earlier, which is a, a, the play that you've, you have written, um, it opens in Cork on this Tuesday, actually. The 21st, Tuesday yeah. yeah. I'm going to be down. I'm, I'm coming down. I think there's a question-answer uh, thingy afterwards. So What's the, Is it at the Everyman, is it? It's at the Everyman, yeah. yeah. And you're going to do a Q&A as well. Yeah. And that play, just to remind everybody again, Emmett Kerwin's in it. Emmett Kerwin, Seamus O'Rourke and Claire Barrett. Claire yeah. Barrett directed directed by, um, by a great, a great actor uh, that I'm sure, uh, who you, you've had on yeah. here previously, Aaron Monaghan. Aaron yeah. Monaghan. Yeah. A talented man. Yeah. With a strange fondness for Garth Brooks. Did you know yeah. that? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. There's no. always a catch, isn't there? Yeah. I heard that on the, when I was listening to your show and yeah. I, I switched, had to switch off all. Yeah, it was a strange moment, all right. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> your, last, your last... People always uh, let you down. Your, your last track, your last choice, and we're going back to your dad here, uh, Jim Doherty. Um, this from is from Spondance. Spondance, yeah. yeah. Is Louis on this too? He is. Yes, he is, yeah. Um this was, um, my dad conceived it as a jazz ballet, he called it. Um, he, he had great plans. It, it's never been produced as a, as a ballet, but um, this, this was music that he recorded in 1986, I think, uh, over in L.A. And Jim had a, an association with, um, with Bobby Shue, a great trumpeter from over there. Bobby Shue was over playing at some festival here and they got on mightily. And uh, so uh, I think Bobby ended up booking the organizing the LA end of it and he booked great 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 session musicians and um, and jazzers and Jim brought Louis over as well as a featured soloist and um, an album called Spawn Dance yeah and it uh, it really is a beautiful um, you know it's not a big band it's about a, it's a it's a, an eight piece I think is it but this great um, beautiful beautiful writing eight and, piece yeah yeah and Louis really uh I don't know, I think Louis at his best as well. Um, just mercurial and um, his tone is so beautiful and his ideas and he uh, he floats around the music, yeah. And this is called When Two People Meet. Yeah. Mark Doherty, thanks a million for coming in, picking the tracks, pleasure. Thanks, John. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.